If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 25. And as you do that, um, you might have noticed that the parable of the two sons, which comes before the parable of the tenants, which is why it mentions verse 28 and, and not the rest, which must uh, an oversight, <clears throat> is because that parable in particular, uh, at least the parable of the tenants, is what draws our attention to the old and the new covenant uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we read Psalm 25, as we have been thinking over the last few months about covenant theology, and we will be moving into our series on what is a covenant renewal service. But before we get there, we have to sort of lay the ground with uh, familiar uh, lessons. And so we have seen the relationship between God and a nation, then the relationship between uh, God and an individual, And in Psalm 25, we see the relationship uh, between God, the individual, and the nation. And so with me, we will read Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust. In you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast, are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. Let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we ask of you this morning that we would see that in the midst of trouble there is you. You are present with us at all times. 
And though many of us may feel as though we live with a feeling of a distant Jesus, we recognize, Father, that this is not true. And so we ask this morning that as we reflect on your word and hear it into our minds and in our hearts, that we would know that you are present with us at this very time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it seems strange, doesn't it, that when Jesus turns up, that the first reaction to Jesus for some is surprise, but as we saw in the parable of the vineyard, it is to reject him. It is to reject the one who can uh, make all trouble disappear. In fact, as I've often said before, that most people expect Jesus to come and cause trouble, at least for the Roman Empire. And yet when you read the New Testament, Jesus is the one who ends up in the hands of those who want to cause him trouble. In fact, even to the point of death. Now, of course, he lays down his own life. And what this does for us is it lays out quite clearly the words of Jesus. And they are somewhat contradictory, but they make perfect sense only in Christ. And they are that in Christ you will have peace and perfect peace. But in this world, you will not be able to get through it without troubles. How then is it to have both peace and trouble at the same time? And therefore, as we live the Christian life, and as we live in light of troubles, we must recognize that there is peace present in those troubles. It is not either or, it is rather both and. And Jesus says this and many other things such as, for I have overcome the world. You belong to me and I have overcome the world and therefore by implication you will overcome the world and all the troubles in the world. And so what we begin to understand in the psalm and also in the New Testament is that these things are held together quite comfortably. That trouble and peace are both and rather than either or. And so when you read the parable of the tenants, that their rejection of Jesus and the trouble that they cause him actually leads to uh, either the stumbling block for those who continue to reject Jesus or the very foundation upon which lives are built. And so you can either build yourself, build your life on the rock or be crushed by it. But it cannot be either or in the sense of trouble and peace for the Christian. The Christian will have both and. And this is the blessing that we find in this psalm. Now you can either have troubles with Jesus in this world or you can have troubles without Jesus in this world. But you cannot have no troubles. So the choice before you is quite clear. You can either have Troubles with Jesus and therefore peace. Or you can have troubles without Jesus and some kind of pseudo peace, which is not really a peace at all. It's rather an absent-mindedness or a forgetfulness that lasts temporarily only to be then disrupted by further trouble down the road. And so what we see in this psalm is David crying out for the Lord's help. But how the Lord helps is not st standing in David's place and doing it for him, but rather giving him the means by which he can then be helped. 
And so God provides for us, as you will know, by enabling us to be able to provide for ourselves. God does occasionally send bread from heaven, okay, to remind us that he is the provider because most people believe and understand that bread comes from the ground. No, God says, it comes from me, so I'll send it a different way so that you are reminded it comes from me. But God provides for you by enabling you to be able to provide for yourself. And one of the ways that God will help you is by equipping you in ways so that you're therefore then able to be helped by God equipping you. He doesn't set you aside and does it for you. Rather, he builds you up so that he can get you through the trouble. And so there is a reminder here that is a believer that one of the hardest things that you may actually find to do is to wait on the Lord for both guidance and blessing. Because waiting is often in the dark. It doesn't feel like waiting so much when you know the person's coming. If you're waiting for your friend to come and they said, I will pick you up at 5 p.m., then you can be stood there for 10 minutes, but you're, you're not worried, you're, not, you're quite happy to stand there for 10 minutes because you know at 5 p.m. you'll be picked up. But if it was, well, I'll pick you up this evening, then the worry kind of creeps in because you don't know. Well, for the Christian, to wait upon the Lord is to wait upon one in whom we can be absolutely certain, but not necessarily of the timing. So we are waiting on someone who will most definitely help us. The difficulty, however, is that we don't know when he will or why he allows it to go as far as what he does before he actually steps in and helps us. I once met, I once met a Polish pastor who couldn't speak English and his sermon had to be translated into English and I then had to present or proclaim his sermon on his behalf. And he was a church that we supported. And in his sermon, he stated that the Lord had to put him in hospital in order to slow him down. And only at that point did he finally stop doing things and wait and wait and wait. And then the Lord brought to him not only the peace and the rest that he needed, but it could have come another way if only he stopped. The difficulty that we have is that Christians can look like they are gluttons for sorrow and pain and trouble. But I'm being faithful. And all my faithfulness looks like is more sorrow. All that my faithfulness looks like is more trouble. All that my faithfulness to the Lord looks like is more pain. And so how is that a witness to the world where Christianity is some kind of victorious life? Well, it's hidden in the peace, in the trouble that you have. The victory that is given to you in Christ is peace in that trouble. It is the fact that those troubles will never overcome you. It is the fact that any pain or sorrow that you currently have will not get the better of you. But only you know that in Christ. What the world sees is that you are a group of people who are gluttons for punishment. You remain faithful. You battle with your fears. You battle with your anxieties. You battle with all of these things and you remain faithful in trouble and pain and in sorrow 
because the one you have faith in is the one who will help you. And this is exactly where we find ourselves here in Psalm uh, 25. The other thing that we notice, which is also pretty important, is that when you ask for help, that's revealing. Not the fact that you ask for help, but when you ask for help. In other words, do you only ask for the Lord's help at the point when you can no longer continue? Or do you wake up daily trusting in the Lord's aid? Or do you go about your week in your own strength only then to fall back onto the Lord's strength because you have run out? It's just become too much. So when you call upon the Lord for help, it is revealing to you and to others what type of relationship you actually have. It's a bit like a pastor saying, I haven't had much time to pray this week. Uh, sorry, I haven't had much time to prepare my sermon this week, so I'm going to have to pray twice as much. Well, <clears throat> shouldn't you be praying twice as much anyway? Right? Because the skill isn't in the preparation it's in the Lord blessing in the first place. So we mustn't think that a sermon can be better if, um, for instance, the man has longer to prepare, though that should be true. We should expect it to be more heartfelt by the people because the pastor has spent more time in prayer. It is God who helps, not the man who helps himself. Do you understand the difference? This is exactly the same when it comes to you as you live your Christian life. It is true that God has enabled you to be able to do certain things, but none of those things then have to be done as though you've left God behind like the gas station after you've filled up the car. Well, I've got what I've needed, now I can go out on my own. No, that, is, that is why so many Christians live with the feeling of a distant Jesus. As if I know I'm a Christian, and I know that I'm believing the right things, and I know that I'm doing the right things, but the presence of God seems distant from me. And that's why it happens. Because you are coming to church, you're filling up on the spiritual blessings that you have here, and then Monday morning you go out in your own strength. What we see here in Psalm 25 is that God is one who wants you to walk a close and clean life with him. He doesn't want you to live a life where you feel as though you're living with the feeling of a distant Jesus. So let's look at this psalm as we go through. The psalm begins, you'll notice in verse, um, verse 1, with the focus being on the individual, but it ends, verse 22, with the focus being on the nation. And the significance in part here is that in order for there to be order in the nation, there must be an order at the individual level. In order for the nation to be strong, the individual has to be strong. In order for the nation to be faithful, the individuals in that nation must be faithful. And so when God's people are faithful at an individual level, then you can expect a church to be faithful because you have faithful people gathering. That's, that's, it really is that simple. Now, it is possible, of course, for a percentage play to be laid out here. 
that if you have 90% who are faithful in the reflections of Psalm 1, for instance, and thus producing fruit for the rest, then it is possible for those 10% who are struggling in their faith and have become weary and beaten down by the troubles to be lifted up by the others. But imagine if that flipped itself on its head. Imagine if you had a congregation where the majority of people were not practicing faithfully the sort of meditations of Psalm 1 and therefore not able then to produce fruit for others in the congregation. Well, then you begin to have a congregation that brings others down because it is not possible to provide what you need by yourself. The way Christ designed a man and a woman and the way Christ designed his church and the way Christ designed his nation and indeed the world is that you cannot provide everything you need for yourself by yourself. And therefore, your individual faithfulness is not just to the benefit of you, it is to the benefit of those that you spend time with. It is to the benefit of those in the church. It is to the benefit of those in the family. And so, covenantally, we can understand why the church at large is in the state that it is. Because it is clearly obvious that as you look at the church at large nationally or even globally, that there are fewer people who are faithfully practicing the things that they ought to compared to those who are not. And so the church has a very poor look. And so as God looks down from heaven and sees his one church, what does God actually see? What is the percentage of those who are faithfully producing fruit for others, Psalm 1 verse 3, compared to those who are simply coming and taking without actually producing anything for anybody else? And so what David is getting at the heart here is that he, like Nehemiah in chapter 1, is coming before the Lord almost, almost confessing his sins for everyone because he recognizes that this is just not an issue with me, this is an issue with the nation. So he says this, verses 1 to 3, he prays for guidance to be led. <clears throat> Sorry, he's asking God for help, verses 1 to 3. Then in verses 4 to 5, he's asking God to be led, or rather to be taught and to be led. And then for mercy and forgiveness, verses 6 and 7. And then to be instructed and pardoned, verses 8 through to 15. He is asking God to consider his circumstances, to guard him and to deliver him, verses 16 through to 20. And then David waits upon the Lord, not only for himself, but, verse 21 and 22, but for the whole of Israel. And this is at the very heart of covenantal thinking, that I am not my own, in that my relationship with God is simply just between me and him. My relationship with God is between me, him, and you. Because when you belong to the covenant, you not only belong to God, you belong to each other. And therefore the responsibility, very much like Nehemiah in chapter one, in confessing the sins of a nation, or Job, in going out and offering offerings to God, lest his children, who are grown up, by the way, and left home, 
have sinned against God in their heart and do not know it, he takes on that responsibility. Well, David is doing the same here, not for his children, but for the nation. This is what it means to think covenantally. It means that I am a Christian and I am an individual, but I belong covenantally to the Lord and to all those whom God has made covenant with. And so when the church goes through troubles, the individual is troubled. And when the individual goes through troubles, the church body is troubled. In the sense that we mourn with those who mourn, we weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we feel the weight that someone else is going through, and we pray and we fast and we do these things because we are one in Christ Jesus. We are participating in this because it is the right thing to do because we are not separated from each other, but we are actually joined to one another. And so while it may be true that pain or trouble is somewhat subjective, in other words, you can't feel what I feel. And when I feel pain, you can't feel the type of pain I feel. But at the same time, you know what pain is like. And therefore, you're able to enter into it and you're able to relate in a way where you recognize, yeah, I know what this is like. And in fact, I may not have any trouble but I will share your trouble because I'm one with you in Christ Jesus. I've always marveled at the fact of why Jesus wept. Because he knows in about four minutes time, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why would you cry? Why would you cry when you know in about four minutes time, you're going to bring someone back to life? Have you ever wondered why Jesus cries? When he knows that he is the one who can overcome death, when he knows that he is the one who can raise someone from the dead, have you ever stopped to think why Jesus cried? And the reason being is because he's entering into the sadness of Mary and Martha and the many others who lost Lazarus. And this is the kind of thing that we do as a covenant people of God. We enter into and share with others the weeping, the trouble, the burdens. Though it's not our own, yet nonetheless, it is something that we ought to relate to. <clears throat> and so what we now have is, of course, this difficulty between knowing the comfort of God and having the trouble in the world. And what we hear, find here in the psalm is that this can be explained in a couple of ways. So we know, in principle that there is, there is a distinction between having trouble with Jesus and peace that comes with that, and having trouble in the world without Jesus. We know that to be true. And we know that we are not spared from suffering as Christians. In fact, we may even suffer more because we are Christians. Think of persecution. But sometimes your troubles are worse because you have made them worse for yourselves. This is not something that we think is fair or even necessarily true. Is it possible that a Christian can bring more trouble upon themselves than the Lord has actually directed their way in the first place? I'll give you an example. When I was growing up, <clears throat> my nan had a stove in the kitchen. 
And she would often say to me, don't touch, it's hot. Okay. And I would get near it, and if you had sat too close to it for too long, you'd, you'd, you'd move. But of course, could I add to the potential trouble? Well, I could reach out and burn my fingers. And then my fingers would hurt for several days afterwards. And so I've increased my trouble rather than being spared from trouble by not listening to the instruction. Okay, in other words, I said actually back in the Sunday School series that there are two ways to know truth. You can either know it through being told and avoid the damaging experience, or you can know it through being told and not listening and having the damaging experience. But having the damaging experience doesn't mean that you've learned more. You've had an experience that you didn't have prior, but you've not learned more. You've not understood more. And so what David has here is that is it possible, is it possible for your pain to be made worse because you actually need for the Lord's ways to be made known to you. Verse 4, David says, make, to, make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. In other words, that if I'm not learning, if I'm not receiving, if I'm not paying attention, is it possible that I can make my Christian life more troublesome than what it currently is? And the answer is yes. The Lord has not been harder on, you, harder on you than anybody else. You're just not paying attention and therefore you're making it harder on yourself than it needs to be. But is it, can it be hard in another way? Well, I think it can as well. And the way that it can be hard is when you are in the same position Paul is as he considers the nation of Israel. This is what he says in Romans 9. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul is suffering because he sees his own people unsaved. Every father and mother, when their child is hurt or goes through perhaps more of an emotional hurt, would rather feel the pain than their children feeling that pain. You would much rather assume the pain of your children than your children go through it themselves. Yet your children have to go through it because it's part of that which actually molds them and shapes them and matures them. But as a parent, your instinct, your, your nature, your heart is to almost take that pain from them and just assume it yourself so that they don't have to go through it. So sometimes the pain that you feel is not actually your own. It's the pain of another which you would want to feel and because you can't, your therefore pain is increased further. So now we begin to see that the troubles that we have in life are multiple. It is not simply the case of stubbing your toe or losing a job or being poorly or whatever it may be. Troubles can increase, troubles can decrease. The troubles that we can be under may not even be our own. The pain that we feel may not even be our own pain. It may be the pain of someone else. Or it could be, in many ways, as Paul is feeling, that the very people who are unconvicted of their need of Christ, 
Paul is suffering for. And how many times have you had perhaps people in your family, extended family, people in your neighborhood or, or friends afar, where you have spoken to them the gospel over and over again, and it just does not seem to get through. And the pain that you feel because they do not understand, because they do not come to Christ, it's not their pain. They're not troubled by it, even for a moment. But you are. And the reason you're troubled is because you have the peace of God in Christ. And so you have this combination of, I'm at peace in perfect peace in Christ, but I'm troubled by my unbelieving friend who I have shared the gospel with, but does not seem to respond. And so now we begin to understand what Paul is feeling, beginning to understand what David is feeling. Now we begin to see that while it looks like troubles are pretty straightforward in life, they're far from being straightforward. Sometimes our troubles are made worse by our simple lack of patience. We are impatient and therefore we make our troubles worse. And therefore our troubles are then magnified by our impatience because we then end up into a state of anxiety. And anxiety, of course, is not necessarily, or strictly speaking, a purely psychological addition. It is sinful. To worry is to engage in sin. And sometimes we take the wrong medicine. Right? Well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm sinful. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm going to take a tablet. Well, I think the, the real issue is that because anxiety is a sin, you ought to repent of that sin. And sometimes we, 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 we misdiagnose ourselves and then we mismedicate ourselves. I'll give you another example that I learned this several years ago, that apparently that as you begin to feel thirsty, you are already dehydrated before you even begin to feel thirsty. The thirst is a bit like the warning light coming on in your car that you have low oil. It's, it's, it's got too far. And so when you begin to drink, um, you begin to then rehydrate yourselves. But how many of us have grown up, like I did, because I didn't learn this lesson until late, where I'm actually dehydrated, have a terrible headache, and the first thing that I do is I take a paracetamol, which is a headache tablet, rather than drink a full glass of water. In other words, I go to something to take away the headache rather than address the root cause, which is the dehydration. And Christians do this over and over again, that we address the troubles and the problems that we have in the wrong way, when the right way is to go to God and ask for help, to do what David is doing here, to repent of my sin, to ask, where are my blind spots, Lord? Teach me, let me know, guide me. I'm blind to my own path. And yet too often we ask the Lord for things um, to address problems that are not really the problem. And so the issue here is that when a Christian gets to that stage, the Christian can end up feeling like they're living with the distant Jesus. That God's just not there. I close my eyes and I pray and it just doesn't feel that God has time for me. 
or <clears throat> I live my Christian life and I know that God is a very present help in time of need and I feel that I need him right now and he doesn't seem to be presenting himself. And But that feeling of a distant Jesus is actually because you've not been coming to him for help or guidance all the time. Well, what David shows us here is a demonstration of how to do it properly, or at least how to get to the place where you can actually come before the Lord. He asked the Lord God to make his ways known to him. Why? Well, just in case he doesn't know them himself. To teach him his past. Why? Because he obviously doesn't know them. To lead and to be led in the truth. Because God is the God of his salvation. David waits. David wants to know. David wants to be led. David wants to be taught. It is a state of absolute humility to bring yourself before the Lord and say, I don't know what I don't know. Now, you've all seen the learning pyramid. You know, when you teach children, the first thing that you have to show them on the bottom of the pyramid is that you don't know what you don't know. And when a child begins to know what they don't know, then they can learn. But when a child doesn't know what they don't know, they think they know it all. Just like, you know, a lot of men are. You know, we've all dealt with men who don't know that they don't know and think, and they are nulls. Very hard to deal with, very hard to teach anybody who doesn't know uh, that they don't know. What David here knows is David knows that he doesn't know. And now he can begin. Now the humility starts. Now he comes before the Lord. Lord, I know I don't know. And I'm coming to you asking to know. I'm asking for help. And this is the way that David is essentially led out of the trouble that he is in. Because he doesn't see the trouble he is in, he only feels the circumstances of those troubles. So he knows something is wrong, but he cannot pinpoint what it is. And so he is calling upon the Lord his God to have mercy on him, according to his steadfast love. David also knows that he's asking the Lord for mercy. He's asking the Lord Verse 7, to remember not the sins of his youth or his transgressions anymore. He is then recognizing that his sin is a barrier between him and the Lord his God. In fact, if you read Psalm 51, in fact, that was one of the questions that I was asked in my examination this last week, my final examination. Boy, am I pleased. Um, and the question is, what was Psalm 51 about? Well, what a lot of people don't realize with Psalm 51 is that the two sins that David has committed of which he is asking the Lord for forgiveness in Psalm 51, there is no atonement for. There is no atonement for in the Old Testament for those two sins. So I want you to imagine the kind of trouble that David is in when he is asking for forgiveness, knowing that under the Levitical laws of atonement, there is no atonement that can be made to cover his sin. So he throws himself on the Lord 
pleading that the Holy Spirit would not be taken from him because that's what he saw happen to Saul who came before him. That's the seriousness of how sin separates us from the living God. And so God desires that we confess our sins. God desires that we ask him for forgiveness. God desires that we bring ourselves back into the place where we recognize our distance and close that distance by the confession of sin. And so the one who prays, the one who seeks, the one who asks, the one who trusts, the one who does not doubt, the Lord responds. The Lord is already there to answer the prayer of the one who prays in faith. And the point here is, is that faith has to be integrated into everything that you do. So I want to illustrate this point by turning to John Murray. John Murray is a Scottish theologian, a very good theologian. He put a, a, a number of books to print, or he put a lot of his thoughts down in writing years after. He was asked about 15 years before he started writing to put his writings into print, and he says they're just not good enough. Eventually he did. 10 or 15 years later, he began to write. And a couple of his essays on education and world order, he makes this point. Now I'm gonna paraphrase because I'm, I'm emphasizing two essays in about two sentences, but this is the point that he makes in those two essays. He says, the Christian abandons their faith at the point of vocation in life if he or she fails to bring their faith to bear upon their work. And this is different than conducting himself or herself in the workplace. I'll say it again. The Christian abandons their faith at the point of vocation in life if he or she fails to bring their faith to bear upon their work. And this is different than conducting himself or herself in the workplace. And his point is simple, that you abandon your faith at the very moment that your faith no longer influences what you say or do. You've abandoned your faith. So the moment your faith is no longer influencing your decisions, the moment your faith is no longer influencing your conduct, or the moment your faith is no longer influencing what you say or do to anyone or even to yourself, you've abandoned it. You have abandoned your faith at that point. So the next time you do something that you know you ought not to do, that you engage in sin willfully that you know you ought not to engage in, then you must recognize that you are abandoning your faith at that point. And as you abandon your faith at that point and engage in sin, you are therefore then creating the separation of distance between you and a father who loves you. You are making your troubles worse for yourself. So rather than coming to God and asking for those troubles to be decreased through faith and trust in him and asking the Lord to do what is right, you are making it worse by abandoning your faith at the very point when it should be the strongest. This is the very heart of the issue here. Do not abandon your faith. It's possible to be a Christian. It's possible to go to the shop as a Christian and at the same time abandon your faith when you engage in a conversation with someone there. 
don't do that. This is the very thing that we ought not to do. And so we can so easily lead our life out of intimacy with God through sins that we may not even recognize. Because we've abandoned our faith and we've not even recognized what we have done and we've led ourselves out of intimacy with God and then wonder why our Christian life feels like we're living with a distant Jesus. You have to go back a few steps. And so Psalm 25 is addressing this at the individual level so that ultimately it can be addressed at a national level. Hence why David finishes in Psalm, sorry, verse 22 of Psalm 25, to redeem Israel out of all of his troubles. Well, in order for that to happen, it has to happen on an individual level and it has to happen largely on a national level, but these things are not separate. They are indeed together. Well, let me bring this to a conclusion. There is enough trouble in the world without you doing something to add to it. And yet, as we can see, it is clearly possible that you can add to it. But at the same time, you are troubled by pain that's not even your own because of the love that you have for others. And therefore, don't make your troubles worse because you have more than enough to deal with. David's plea is to be rescued from all of his troubles. David's plea is that Israel would be rescued from all of its troubles. Our plea to the Lord our God is that the church would be rescued from all of its troubles. But when we look at the church, most of its troubles are internal rather than external. And so what is needed in the church is the confession of sin. Our troubles are multiplied because we are abandoning our faith. That's the trouble of the church. So here's the exhortation. God's comfort is both internal, that is a matter of our soul and our heart being comforted and met with the blessings of God, and God's comfort is also external in that our lives are actually physically protected with food and with shelter and with clothing and with work. God blesses us both internally and externally. And so the sin that we need to be aware of is our abandoning our faith when our faith is no longer influencing what we say, do, go or anything that involves our Christian life. So don't go from here this morning. Don't leave this service today trying to escape your troubles because you won't. Rather, ask God for help. Turn from your sin and receive both the internal and external blessings that only God can give. Amen. Let me pray. Gracious God and Father, we ask of you this morning that you would prick us in our heart the moment we begin to abandon our faith in thought, word, and deed, that we may repent of that sin immediately and not make our troubles worse, but call out to you for help so that we may receive the comfort and blessing that can only come from you. In Jesus' name, amen.